Hello and welcome to the Anchor Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with our Wednesday evening Bible studies here in this podcast. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. What I handed out tonight is your outline of already what I gave you, but I simplified it as much as I can. And I want to go through this because when we get to the scriptures and start studying the scriptures, what I want you to already understand is where did this nonsense come from? Because what you're going to see is that Augustine, we talked about him, is the one main guy who brought this into the church in church history. Never before Augustine had any church father brought this into the church, this Calvinistic, this theological determinism. So it started with Augustine. Well, if it started with Augustine, then we have to then study Augustine himself and where he was coming from and what he was doing. And so he is the key to understanding modern day Calvinism. So what Dr. Ken Wilson put together in his book, and it's a thick PhD book, and, and if you want to get it, you can get it. It's like over a hundred and something dollars. You can get it in an abridged version. But um, anyway, I'm going to share snippets of that book with you. And so the first thing to do to understand Calvinism is where does it come from? Well, here's what I want to do. I want to go through the Greek influence on Augustine with us tonight. And then here's what I want you to do so you don't zone out on because this is this starts going pretty deep into Greek philosophy, okay? You have to know this in order to understand where it came from because when you read this, you will say, man, I've heard that somewhere. I've heard R.C. Sproul say that. I've heard J.I. Packard say that. I have heard Matt Chandler say that. I have heard this Calvinist say that. And I'll say, yes, you did. But then I'm going to show you where it comes from. And then you will start connecting dots and you will say, aha, I now get what's happening here. Okay, the first influence on Augustine was Stoicism. And I have that right there, the first thing we want to uh, take a look at. In Stoicism, as you can follow along with me, they believed that everything is caused, and this is what we call causal determinism. They didn't define it as fate, necessarily, but that everything is caused. And so your actions... Your behavior, the things you did were caused, okay? Now, the question is, caused by what? Caused by my free will? Let's keep going, okay? And number two, humans are captive to bad choices because their innate choosing ability was faulty or is faulty. So, all humans can do is make bad choices in this scheme, okay? All they can do is make bad choices. That should already raise a flag with you and a connection. All humans can just make bad choices. Where have I heard that before? And let me rephrase it. Humans can only do what their will allows them to do. And if their will is a sin nature, their only choice is to do what? Sin. Connecting dots? You see where he came from? You see where it's bridging over? He's getting this from Stoicism. Okay, let's continue on. Because, he says, innate choosing ability is faulty. So instead, the Stoics, 
said something in a human is faulty. They can't choose the good. So if Augustine's coming from Stoicism and he put it in Christianese, what did he do? What did he say? What is faulty about us? What's innate in us that causes us to choose wrong? The sin nature causes us to choose always wrong. Is that true? Does the Bible teach just because you have a sin nature that all your choices are always going to be bad? No, it doesn't teach that. Calvinists teach that. But as you can see, that theological, if they want to call that presupposition, is coming from Stoicism. Let's continue on. Number three, a person has zero possibility of not following his or her fate. Let me put that in other words. You are a slave to fate, is what they're saying. They're saying it negatively, that the person has no possibility of ever changing that fate. So what your fate is, is your fate, and you're not going to change it. You're unchangeable. Now, this is where they go on, they go a little bit further, and they say that, they said that there wasn't an opportunity that existed to not follow his or her fate, so free will remained. So in their scheme, it's fated free will. Fated free will? How can free will be fated if it's free will? It can't be. So Stoicism believed in an oxymoron. Flaming snow, right? And that's part of Stoicism. Calvinism then says, well, you're free in this sense. And then they redefine freedom. You're free that you're free to obey your sin nature. So the illustration that the Stoics give could aptly apply to Calvinists. And this is how the Stoics applied this. They said it's like a dog tied up to the back of a wagon. That wagon is moving, but that dog is tied to that wagon. And the only freedom he has is that little leash that's tied to the wagon. That's how they described freedom. Okay? By the way, that's the same description that Calvinism gives for our freedom. That you're only free to obey your sin nature, and therefore you are the dog on a leash tied to a wagon, and that wagon is going in one way, and guess what the dog is doing behind it? He is being dragged behind. What little freedom he has, it doesn't matter because he's going in a direction and he can't stop. He is fated for a destiny. Hmm, it's interesting. Then he goes, the Stoics go on and say, a person's character is fated from external influences. So you have these external influences that come down on you, and then they say our character causes what we decide, so our moral culpability exists because we assent to it. Now this is funny that they say things like this, because it seems like they're saying that there's a certain amount of freedom here. But they're redefining freedom to mean it's fated freedom. And so they're saying, yeah, you could be influenced from the outside. And when you're influenced from the outside, your character will then make decisions. And, and you, that's where moral culpability comes from. It's the same argument the Calvinists will make when you say, how then are we responsible if I'm fated to go to hell? How can you hold me responsible? Well, they're going to come back with the same stoic response, which, if you realize this is nonsense, okay? This is doublespeak, okay? We're not saying that this makes sense. We're saying this is ridiculous. That 
okay, I can be influenced from the outside, they're saying, then that creates a character or whatever, and my character can make decisions, and I can assent to things, but I really can't, because my freedom is faded. So doesn't make sense. Where's the moral culpability? Well, they'll say your moral culpability is because you can assent to things. But I can't assent to things. Do you see what the problem is? The problem is you say one thing and then you say another. And if you say two things that oppose each other, what's the violation under the law of logic? It's called the law of non-contradiction. You cannot have two mutually exclusive things diametrically opposed to each other and say, I can maintain both in a logical way. You can't. And Stoicism makes that leap. That is the same that Calvinists make. It is a leap of believing in two mutually exclusive truths, or, or they think truths, that diametrically oppose themselves. There is no such thing as faded free will. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. But that's stoicism. Okay? And it comes down to because of their system is, incom- is not according to God, it's according to man. Man's systems are not consistent. And so, here's my question. What do you think a Calvinist says when you say, well, how do you believe in moral responsibility and yet God determined and decreed everything? What do you think they say? What do you think a Stoist would say? Have you heard what they say to this? Well, you just don't understand. It's too much to explain to you. If you that's too hard to explain. You have to study more. You're just going to have to study more. And then you'll understand. Or, you know what, that's a mystery of God. We're just going to punt that. And, you know, on the gates of heaven, it says, All ye are welcome. And then on the back, it says, Chosen from the beginning of the foundation. Oh, you want to punt to an antinomy, don't you? When you see a pastor punt to antinomy, and saying, we believe in two mutually exclusive things that diametrically oppose each other, but we're going to all figure it out in heaven, that pastor is telling you he hasn't done his job studying. That's just it. And it's an admission that they don't know what they're talking about in this particular area because they haven't put the time in. You can't just punt everything off to mystery or pietism or we just don't know the mysteries of God. Does it say that salvation's a mystery? It doesn't. It makes it very clear what salvation is. But you see now there's the influence of Stoicism on Augustine and there's this contradiction going on. But then they go at verse number five, I should say, the ascent is determined. So you can't even ascent because your ascent is determined, which is ridiculous. And number six, non-free will is free will is what they believe in. And this solves apparently their dilemma of the evil will or chooser. And the implication is this is a logical contradiction. Non-free will is not free will. This is robot theology, basically. You're pre-programmed to choose what you're programmed to do. And this doesn't give real choice. It's a facade. It's an oxymoron. The stoic determinism cannot reconcile with, with a genuine free choice. You cannot have moral responsibility in the system. And they redefine what free will is and what is determinism. Okay. So the implication is this is a faulty system from a biblical standpoint. But yet this system is being used on Christianity right now. Stoicism is with us. It infiltrated. And as you can see, this bore into Augustine's skull 
And all he did is repackage Stoicism into Christian terms. Okay? Instead of saying man's innate choosing ability is faulty, he just said man is a sinner and cannot make free choices. That's what he did. That's all he did. Okay, any questions so far? I know it's a lot. That's pretty deep stuff, and I understand we're in Greek philosophy at this point, but you have to really understand where this is hidden. So when you're talking to a Calvinist, one of the questions I would say is, how are we different than a robot? If we're predetermined for certain things, and God predetermined it, then really, how can he hold me accountable? So for instance, if, if I, he predetermined someone to, like tonight, he pre, they would say he predetermined what's going on in Louisville. He predetermined it. That nothing happens outside of his will. So you predetermined that these people would go crazy and go loot and rob and knock down buildings and do what they need to do. They've already shot a cop. That God predetermined that? They say yes. They have to. They have to. Because that's their system. So when you say things like that, what does it impugn as far as God is concerned? What are you attacking when you say that God decrees evil things to happen? What are you accusing God of? Evil. Oh, no, we're not saying that. Well, yes, you are. You are saying that. And that's what Stoicism is saying. Let's move on. Neoplatonism. Neoplatonism. Hold on, I know this is pretty deep philosophy, but we got to get this under our belts. They believe that man lost the divine image. Okay? The image was lost when the immaterial soul became connected with physical matter, and the divine image could only return at death when the physical matter or the body is removed. And so in, in Neoplatonism, Platonism, and even in Hindu, salvation for them is for the soul to detach from the body. Okay, that's Neoplatonism. And so in Neoplatonism, matter is evil in that sense. You'll see this in Gnosticism and whatnot. Okay, the point of this is man, they say, lost the Imago Deo in the fall. Okay? This is what the Greeks are saying. Here's my question. In Genesis, or in any passage of the Bible, does it say that just because Adam and Eve fell, or just because mankind fell, that man lost being made in the image of God? We know from the Bible it doesn't teach that. But Neoplatonists do. And so, going to number two, the goal in life for Neoplatonism is to bring back the God in oneself to the divine in all by reabsorption into the one. That's very Hindu, okay? So you're going to see a lot of connections with Neoplatonism with Hindu. Yes. Yeah, that you're, you're going to continue to be reincarnated until you finally learn your lesson, and then once you learn all your lessons, then you uh, dissolve into the one. Very Hindu. So you can see with the Greeks in their religion that they were bringing over stuff from the East into their thought patterns, okay? The Greeks were basically doing an amalgam of different religions and putting them together and trying to make sense of things, okay? But they never could get close. The further they dealt with this stuff, the deeper and deeper they got into crazy stuff. It just didn't make sense. So 
to them, evil does not come from being physical matter, as it does with Gnosticism and Manichism, but the combination of matter, soul, and body introduces evil. So it's the whole concept, okay? And then basically, freedom from a person's soul cannot occur without direct association with the intellect. Now, you don't have to understand all that. It's just what they believe. Let's continue on. A lot of it's weird stuff, and, and I'm not expecting you to grasp it all. I don't, I don't want you to grasp it all because it's weird. Yes, and the concept of where evil comes from is where I want you to understand because you're right. We understand where evil comes from, the fall of Satan and his demons and the fall of man and all this other stuff. So the Bible gives a clear understanding where evil is coming from. Neoplatonism is telling you that evil is coming from a different source. In fact, it's telling you and I that evil comes from the material subject that you're made out of. <laughs> you're, you're talking about a functioning Calvinist using those things, right? So he's having a bad day. He got a DUI. Not, not really. But he got a DUI, pretend, and people tell him, God has a plan. God has a plan. It wasn't God's plan for Dennis to get a DUI. Wait, wait, wait. The Calvinists would say yes, because everything is determined. God determined that he would get tipsy and go out and drive and get a DUI. Right? And so the fact that he got pulled over, it's all God's plan. And so, Dennis, I don't even understand, you know, why you would do that. But, you know, you're responsible, but yet it was part of the decree of God for you to do that. And we just don't know the mysteries of all that God has planned for you, but it's his plan. It is kind of his fault, but at the end, Dennis is saying, I'm a victim of fate, I'm a victim of God, because God determined that I would go get drunk, and God determined or decreed that I would get a DUI, but you're responsible. That's what Stoicism and Neoplatonism is teaching. That even though the fates determine what you're doing, you're somehow still responsible. And you're like, I don't know how that works. You're right, it doesn't work. These so-called Greek philosophers weren't that bright because they broke every logical law in their system. You know, people think about Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, all these oh, great thinkers. They weren't that great because when you look at their philosophies, there was contradictions all over the place. It didn't make sense. And when it didn't make sense, they just made some jumbo up and it, it, to, to try to explain it away. And if you're just looking at the explanation and says, I still don't understand what you're talking about. You're right. But it's, what I'm trying to show you is the same thing with Calvinism. You'll sit there and they'll say, you know what, I'm getting so frustrated, I can't explain this to you. You just don't have enough knowledge. And, you know, it's, it's the grace of God. It's the grace of God. God be the glory. God be the glory. What? Quit saying to God be the glory. I don't understand what you mean by that. I'm telling you, I don't understand what your system says. Well, to God be the glory because he's the mysteries of God and you just don't understand. There's confusion, yes, right. And so the confusion that, that you see from the Gnosticism and Manichaeanism and all this other stuff that you're seeing here, I want to show you this. It's not meant for you to really understand it in depth. I, I, don't want, I want you to see how backwards this is, okay, and how it doesn't make sense. You should walk away tonight as confused as a termite in a yo-yo about Greek philosophy, okay?
That's what I want you to your takeaway. And so Richard was pointing out how confusing it is. And then when you talk to a Calvinist, what I was trying to say is that's what when you're dealing with a Calvinist, it starts getting confusing and they don't know what else to do other than pun it to pietism. But then I want, I want you to think about the, like what Dennis brought up. It can get worse. So Dennis gets a DUI and you say, well, you know, that's Dennis and yada, yada, yada. But let's talk about real bad stuff. Someone pulls a gun on you and kills you. Okay. And somebody that believes in this nonsense is going to be, to God be the glory. Let his plan happen. You mean that God decreed that I would get shot? Is that what you, yeah, he, he, there's nothing out of God's control. Nothing. Nothing out of, the fact that you got shot is God's plan. That's plan. And we just don't know all the mysteries of God and there's going to be a good come out of it and you wait and see. I, you tell that to someone at a funeral. See how well that works. You see what I'm saying? It's a game. It doesn't work in real life. And so when you're dealing with these nonsense statements, they're basically, because of this Greek philosophy, blaming God for evil. Right. It's an excuse to not be responsible, she said. And it's true. It's an excuse not to be responsible. <laughs> How does the Calvinist sitting in the church understand this? They don't. The average layman doesn't understand this. And what the pastor will do is sneak it in. And he knows if he goes like what I'm doing right now, like exposing the craziness, he knows if he does that, he will lose his congregation. So what they do is they sneak it in on certain passages, and people are unaware, and he's slipping it in. That's how it gets done. And... Uh, what they'll sell it, Alfonso, is this. God's in control. God's in control. And that's what they want to sell. Now, there's a positive thing about that, obviously, that people are attracted to that. Yes, God's in control. But they overdo it in saying he's in control of everything, even evil. Now you're putting God to be the evil maker as well at that point. Where does what? Confession. Well, you only are going to be able to confess if God has predetermined if you're part of the elect. You don't know. And so that question, I know, see, it doesn't make sense, right? How do you know that you're elect? Well, the question was asked by Spurgeon and other guys, and they go, I don't know, that's not my problem. My problem is just to give the gospel, and, and whoever's elect is going to respond to me. What? Then most of my witnessing is a joke. Because it's, it, I don't even know if this person is a potential elect person or not. And, and so I'm, I'm witnessing like a, it's a joke. It doesn't, it's not real. It's fake. My witnessing is inauthentic at that point. Is it what? Damnable. That's a good question. It's a hard one. Maybe it's this. If you're saved, even though you apostate into this, you're not damned, obviously, because you're saved. But can you lose rewards? Yes, you're going to lose rewards for this kind of theology. That's what I would say for believers who believe in something like that. You're going to lose a whole grip of rewards because at the bottom line of it, Alfonso, these people end up having to prove that they're saved through their works or you know, make themselves confident based on works. 
And that's a works-based system, and, and that doesn't fly with God. It's faith alone. What does it do to them? I'll repeat it. I'll repeat it. Remember that. True. I agree. That's a good point. So she's saying if 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 they the pastor believes in Calvinism and it's so important to that pastor about Calvinism and the way you're saved, how come he doesn't teach it? You know, because if it's that important, and I think the obvious question is, if you did teach this, guess what would happen to the average person? The pastor? What is their? What do they think their purpose? They they will say, "I'm just doing my duty." Okay. Why don't they just tell people if they believe in it so much? Hold on. Because it's like a, a Gnostic secret belief that only the few smart ones know. And boy, if I put it out there, people are going to get confused, and I don't want to confuse my people. And so there's a hesitancy on two levels. The hesitancy of I'm going to confuse people. The other hesitancy is the jig is up. I'm going to be found out. Right. Right. It, and so that pastor really knows intellectually, if he believes in this system, that not everybody in there will want salvation. That there's going to be elect people that want salvation, the other ones don't. And he, it's an integrity issue. Oh, that's even... You do know what's wrong with her, yeah. That's a major lordship salvation thing. Yeah, she was told that uh, if she wasn't raised in a Christian home or something, you know, to that effect, that you can't be saved. But that's, that's what, what is, that's, what is that? That's lordship salvation. You have to have these things to have your life in order before you get saved. Yes. There's an elitism in Calvinism that um, the the upper echelon Christians know it, and the the poor little rank and file Christians are are too dumb to understand it, and so you know we're not going to teach them that per se because it's just going to go over their heads. And that elitism is based on pride. It's totally based on pride. I probably mentioned this. The Bible is written at a fourth grade level. The Greek is in fourth grade level, and the Hebrew is in a fourth grade level. What does that say? That God wants you to know very easily what He's trying to say. Very easily. And so at that point, when you realize, oh my goodness, it's written at a fourth grade level, yeah, it doesn't take a PhD to explain the Bible. And, and that's what the Calvinists want you to think, that we're too smart. You need to be dependent on us to tell you what that means. I know I experienced that growing up as a Catholic. The priest told me, you can't understand the Scriptures on your own. I have to tell you what the teaching magisterium teaches about that verse. Don't try to interpret it on your own. And Calvinism does the same thing. We have to tell you what that verse means. All doesn't mean all. God provisions good and God provisions evil. Yes. Right. That would be a, a very good uh, passage I would use. 
And he would, yeah, he would say, you know, the provision of the Calvinist is that you have the provision of evil, you have the provision of good. And so then you, you know, basically it accuses Calvinism of accusing God of evil. But then you have verses like Chad's bringing up that God doesn't tempt anybody, according to James. That's right, he doesn't. The way they would answer it, well, he's not. Now here's where the double speak comes in. Okay, just like I showed you, there's double speak going on in the Greeks and their thought. The double speak, well, he doesn't, Chad, even though he decreed it, he didn't make them do it. They wanted to do it. So this is what they would say to you. He's not the author of evil, even though he decreed it. That person's guilty for what they did. And you would be right to shake your head and say, you don't make sense. And you know what? And, and then you would know what they say. Well, Chad, you're just not educated enough. Sorry, I'm moving on. Right? That's what they would say. That's how they punt it off. And so here's tonight's not like everything makes sense. Tonight is just I want you to see how wild and crazy this system is, and realize where it came from. Yeah, it just came from pagan religion. They were, they were okay, you know, a little bit on, like, government and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. They were messed up. Spiritually. Understand, the Hebrews were the ones to teach the Gentile nations the right ways of God. The Greeks took it and ran off, and they got so twisted up, they incorporated Hinduism, they incorporated all kinds of weird religions into their philosophy. Plus, they were pantheists. And, and polytheists at the same time. Because of the politics. Because they were the first ones to break the idea of democracies. That's why. And then the Romans just reformed the democracy to a, a republican. No, because the Jewish government was not a democracy. They never would have got that from the Jews. The Jewish government was a theocracy. Top down, all the way. The Greeks are the ones who came up with democracy, the rule of man. What does Laodicean mean? The Greek word leo is a reference to laity, the layman, and decia is government, right? So Laodicea means the rule of the people, democracy. We don't have a democracy. Not really, because we have a Judeo-Christian background and foundation, but that does not make a theocracy, because a theocracy, you actually have to have God ruling on that. And then he's the one who disciplines those who disobey. We have a constitutional republic. Because you don't want a democracy. You do not want a democracy. I don't know why people use that phrase. You do not want a democracy because what the, what the Greeks came up with the idea of a democracy, but it is the rule of men. It is the 51% rule. The best form of government is a theocracy. And that's what's going to happen in the kingdom. So when the Jehovah Witnesses ask you what's the best government, it's a theocracy with Jesus on the throne in Israel in the Messianic kingdom. It's nothing. What we have is a very short, ver uh, I don't know, a, we're doing our best, so to speak, with a, a constitutional republic, but it ain't the best because a theocracy with God would be the best. And so if you, you think about the Bible predicts that the church ends in Laodicea, 
the rule of the people, which is democracy. I want you to think about that for a moment. And then Mary, that, that, that idea of rule of the people comes from the Greeks into Christianity. What does the Hebrew Bible teach about authority? Right? And the authorities are what? Appointed by God. Okay? And so the authorities then are coming top down to you from God. It is not a bottom-up system. Because you've got to have regenerated people. They get saved. Most of Israel was unsaved. How do you do that? They have to come to faith. They hear the word. I'm saying if you look at the way God organized authority, it's never bottom up. It's always top down. I'm not talking about like, if you look at how God establishes things, he starts with him at the top. Then he has ruling people underneath him and it goes forth like that. He selects who he's wanting in authority. Whereas in a democracy, humans select who they want in authority. And what right now we're having, the problem in our country, is we're having people push mob rule, which is full-blown democracy, 51% type. That's why they don't want the electoral college anymore. They say the electoral college is racist because they want a full-blown democracy. And folks, you do not want a democracy. That is mob rule. The 51% will destroy our country. It completely destroys the country. And so think about that in terms of the church, that the church ends in a dem democratic type of situation where it's the rule of the people in the pews rather than the spiritual authority that God has established. Thank you. You got it. You got it. You got the connection. Perfect. So the pastors stay silent because the people rule the pews. He only says what he's allowed to say based on the money coming in from the big financiers, by the pressure from the, the, this group and the pressure from that group. And so he says nothing because he's not going to offend those who rule him. Got it. You got it. That's how the churches are. That's why the church is silent right now. Because of the democracy that's going on in the pews. They rule out there, not the spiritual authority. Couple more things. Hey, I gotta take a break, but couple more things. Watch, read this. Check this out, okay? Go to number two, page two, nine and ten there. Read this and see if you haven't seen this in Calvinism. People are free to choose only what our totally corrupted willer, talking about the will of us inside of the willer, they called it the willer, desires. And this was borrowed from Stoicism, obviously. Did you, did you see that? You can only choose what your sin nature tells you to choose, right? Okay, so that's, that. you can see the, the crossover. Look at number 10. The Neoplatonist God, the reason principle they called it, called him or whatever, desired and created more evil persons than good. Now, wait a second. If you believed that God created more evil people than good, how does that fit into election? Oh, that totally makes sense, that he's only going to elect a few because he's damning everyone else. I mean, that's Neoplatonism. So, limited atonement, unconditional election, 
come from Neoplatonism. Not from the Bible. It comes from a philosophical viewpoint from Neoplatonism. Oh my goodness, I think we've uncovered something. And total depravity comes from this. Total, you got to understand from a Calvinist, because you'll have people say, pastors say, well, I believe in total, total depravity. And it's like, whoa, time out, let's, let's stop there. What do you mean by total depravity? Do you mean that sin has infested all of your being? Or do you mean that you have a total inability to respond to God's call? You see the difference? I believe sin has permeated out through my body. I believe the sin nature has affected my physical body, my soul, my spirit. That's why I had to be born again. Okay? It has affected me. But it didn't affect my imago Deo. And it didn't affect my ability to receive or, or respond to God's call when He called me. And when He called you as well. That you could respond. That means you have an ability to respond. Calvinist says... You have, when they say total depravity, they're saying total inability to respond. So God puts out the call, but you can't respond. And what you'll see as you read, when you take a break, we'll come back to Gnosticism and Manichaeanism. They will say that God has to go into the person and change their willer. Right next to the liver is right. The willer and the liver has to be changed. So let's take a five minute break. We'll come back back, okay? section and get this under our belt before we move on into uh, some other things. Let's move down to on page two to Gnosticism real quick. I'm just going to point out a couple things that I want you to do because this is where we start getting into really where Augustine got his stuff. Let's start with number two, okay? Humans are born evil because they possess a physical body. Therefore, humans are damned at birth, Okay. Do you understand what Calvinists say about sometimes when babies die or children die before they make a decision for the Lord? They go to hell. Okay? And so, not all Calvinists believe that, but many of them do. And so, because they have to come to faith. Jesus says you have to come to faith. And if the person does come to faith, then they obviously weren't saved, even before they reached the age of accountability or, or haven't. And so it's a pretty harsh view, but this comes, as you can see from Gnosticism, that humans are damned at birth, okay? They're damned at birth. Have you ever heard a pastor tell you that, that humans are doubly condemned? Double condemnation. Have you ever heard that? That's a Calvinist statement, that you're double condemned. You're condemned because you're a human being, because you're born with a sin nature, and so you're condemned from birth, and then you're condemned for your own sin. I want to know in Scripture where it says, I'm condemned because I was born with a sin nature. You won't find a text. Yes. Yes. Because they'll say in the fact that, because they are condemned, Augustine made that point. They are condemned. And that if we don't baptize them and get them into grace, then they'll go to hell. And so by baptizing a baby, it puts them in limbo until they can do the sacraments. If they die. So if a baby dies, baptized, they go to limbo. Now where they got limbo as, I don't, I, they made it up. Augustine and them made it up. But, um, that's, yeah, the concept, the concept of condemnation at birth is what precipitated 
infant baptism. Okay? And so, as you can see, it wasn't the Catholic Church that developed that. It was the Gnostics that developed that. So Augustine brought that in. And so that's why the early Catholic Church started baptizing babies so they wouldn't go to hell. Okay? And so now you move into Protestantism. A lot of Protestant churches still baptize infants. They still do that. And they'll say, well, it's for the being in the covenant community or whatever excuse. But that stems from all, going back to that condemnation. But in some of the Calvinist circles, they teach that children are condemned at birth. Okay. What I'm telling you is you will not find a scripture, and you, I need, this will be the challenge if you want to look for it, find a scripture that says you're condemned for a sin nature. What you will see in the scripture over and over and over again is that you and I are condemned for our sins, for actually doing something we know we shouldn't do. And that was what makes us culpable. Do we have a sin nature? Yes. But I am not condemned because of my sin nature. If we were, I would have to say that babies go to hell. But what do we say about children? They haven't reached the age of accountability. They don't know enough to come to faith in Christ. Therefore, they're under God's grace and He takes them home because they, no human is condemned for having a sin nature. Humans are condemned for the sins they do. And it only takes one sin to get condemned, right? But if you're a baby, how can a baby be condemned when they're not morally responsible? How can a mentally handicapped person be condemned if they're not morally responsible? They don't even know. You see what I'm saying, where this goes? And so I think the, the, the Gnosticism is so harsh on people, and it creeped into Calvinism, and that's why you see Calvinism being so harsh with people. It's about their salvation and who can be saved and whatnot. Let's continue on. In number three, the Gnostic good God, because there's two gods in Gnosticism, unilaterally restored right reason to the helplessly corrupted human will through a gift to the mind. Does that sound eerily familiar? So let me break this down into Calvinese. God unilaterally regenerates helpless humans and puts a new nature in them or a new mind in Christ. You see what happened? All Augustine did was Christianize that Gnostic notion. Let's continue on. When the divine grace is implanted, I should, I should say implanted, uh, that spiritual seed then, uh, implants that spiritual seed then the elect's salvation was compelled by their new free will, by their own free choice. Wait a second. Did you see what he said? The Gnostics saying that the divine has to implant the seed in the person, and that salvation then allows them to have free will. Do you notice the order? Notice the order. The implantation has to happen, and then the person can have free will. Or is free. Let me put it in Calvinese. God must regenerate the person and then the person can be free to be saved. But they have to be regenerated and they can believe at that point once they're regenerated. You see the order? The order matches Gnosticism. What does Jesus say? I mean, I know it's simple, but I want you to understand in comparison to this, 
Jesus says you must do what first and then you'll have eternal life. Believe comes first and then you'll have eternal life. The Calvinists follow the Gnostic doctrine of something has to be implanted first or in Calvinese regenerated and then you can believe. The order is messed up because of Gnosticism. Six, all works are predestined. Discipline and abstinence affect nothing. Let me put that in Calvinese. No amount of apologetics, no amount of convincing you, no amount of any arguments from apologetics will convince anyone that's dead. You have to be made alive by God first, and then you can believe. So no matter what you do, it doesn't affect anything. No matter how you train a child up in the ways of the Lord, it doesn't matter. Because that child's either the elect or saved, and if he's elect, he's going to believe no matter what you do. You can raise him in a witch coven, and it won't make a difference, because if God has elected that person at 22 years old, they're going to get saved at 22. Well, that's a good question. If you're elect, why do we even need Jesus? Does that make sense? I mean, you, you start getting a little bit out there, what they're really saying is, you were elected before the foundation of the world, then why do I need Jesus if I was chosen back then? Ah, now you're on to something. Why do I why do I need Jesus then? Hmm, interesting. Why do I need the Holy Spirit? Interesting. You see what stoicism does to theology? Good point. Good point that you're making. Verse 7, the elect are saved by knowing they're saved. Okay. Okay. The non-elect are damned from birth. Wow. Do you see where Augustine's getting this? On page three, real quick. The Gnostic God forced what he commanded, then he could command whatever he willed, and humans will obey without fail. So you really have no freedom. The Gnostic God must regenerate a person before the person is able to believe. Does that sound familiar? Free will and forced grace are taught simultaneously. Only the elect will be given a healed free will to accept salvation offered to everyone. Is it really offered to everyone if you can't respond? No, it's not. So notice how free will and forced grace. In Calvinese, forced grace is called irresistible grace. You see how Augustine just changed the terms from forced grace with the Gnostics teach to irresistible grace. Or Calvin or Luther or whatever put those, those terminologies on it. But that's in effect what they were teaching. And basically then you move to Manichaeanism, and this is the last thing I want to cover. Augustine spent 10 years as a Manichaean. Manichaeanism it branches out of Gnosticism. It's a Gnostic branch, and it's called Manichaeanism because it came from its founder, Mani. And so, um, again, it's a theological framework of Gnosticism. Um, it, number four is interesting. You'll probably understand where the Catholic Church got some of its understandings here. It prohibited sexual relations even in marriage. Sex was evil and the desire for it was sin. Sexual passion transmits sin to children. I wonder where the Catholics got the idea that um, when I grew up Catholic, they told us that sex was only used for procreation and anything else other than procreation is a sin. I wonder where they got that notion from. It came from Greek theology. I wonder where they got the notion that the priests need to be celibate. Hmm. Look at number six real quick. The divine being has to unilaterally wake the dead soul who only then can respond, uh, it should say, to the divine being. I didn't have a lot of time today to prove this. 
Seven, free will was totally lost after humanity's fall. Eight, because of total depravity, Manichaean salvation emphasizes Christ's grace. Isn't that interesting? That Gnosticism, Manichaean Gnosticism, emphasizes Christ's grace a lot. What do Calvinists always emphasize? Grace. They call their churches that. Living grace. Sovereign grace. Grace this. Grace that. Why were they so big on grace? It's because they love the doctrine of grace? No, it's because the Gnostic Manichaeanism were saying that because of total inability, God has to be the one who regenerates the person. And so it's God's grace. <laughs> A lot. I would say the majority of them are. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a major doctrine. Now, they're not going to refer to these things, but it's, it's, it's what's embedded in their theology. So like anyone that, that follows the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith, I'm talking about, like I talked about last week, Presbyterians, um, Lutherans, and even Catholicism. Catholicism had, this, this came out of Catholicism, I hope you know that. Augustine was a Catholic. All of this Catholic, this became Catholic dogma for years. And by the way, when Luther and Calvin broke away, they didn't break away from this. They only came to the, the realization of justification by faith. But the rest of it is them following Augustine, who was a Catholic theologian, basically, at that point in time. He's one of the biggest Catholic theologians you could possibly have. And he's done the most damage to the church and to, to the Protestant church as well. Okay, any questions on that so far? Y'all good? Clear as mud. Okay, so that's, that's our time in Greek philosophy. I just wanted to show you this, that this is where Augustine's getting it. I will then focus our attention on Augustine and understand how he brought it in to the church. And then we'll get into you know, deciphering the scriptures correctly without this Greek thought. Let me tell you something. A real simple principle. The minute the church divorced itself from the Jews, it went to the Greeks, and that's where all the heresies came from. The Greeks messed up everything. The church fathers who followed the Greeks that's where we got spiritualization. That's where we got allegorization of the text. That's where we got all these weirdo theologies from. Is You can thank the Greeks for that. Crazy, huh? Anyway, we got to go. Let's pray. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Anchor Bible Study Podcast. We hope that this lesson is a blessing to you and helps grow you towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has another podcast called Anchor Sunday Sermons. And it's filled with past and present messages in Revelation, Genesis, and Exodus. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear it, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services for the Anchor Sunday Sermons. Support for both of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Until next time. Remember, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.